Obviously grouped in the Christmas song section because of that first verse, but the rest of it is all about his life, so it encompasses much more than just his birth. But the title of the song certainly fits in well with that. That ending, "'Tis the Lord, the King of glory, at his feet we humbly fall, crown him, crown him, Lord of all." And that really kind of feeds right back in to where we were this morning. And so open your Bibles. Well, we're going to do something I, I, I have never done before. Sometimes that makes people nervous. We'll see if I ever do it again. <laughs> but I have, in both our series in Revelation and Colossians, um, I got to a point where I just feel like there's some things to, to tie up together. And not enough for for one whole message uh, for either one. But I think the the concepts that we see at the point where we are in these passages will work well together. So we're going to really quickly finish up the passage of Revelation that I wasn't able to this morning, and then go briefly to Colossians chapter 2 and see kind of the practical outgrowth or the practical application that Paul gives of the victorious Christ who is all we need. So this morning, uh, we finished up in verse 16 in this amazing description of Jesus Christ. We're going to read that again in just a minute, but we're going to continue uh, on through verses 17 through 20 just to finish this out. What I hope to do in the next few weeks, of course, with the Christmas service um, and the the morning before we have our Christmas concert. And I'm throwing a plug for that too. I'm just really, it, it's a blessing to be able to be a part of this ensemble and to have Kurt lead us in the way that he does. But folks, the music is beautiful. We're just having a great time just being able to sing and, and go over these things over and over again. And uh, really encourage you, it, it'll be a blessing. And I'm looking forward to just getting a chance to sing those uh, uh, as testimony for what Christ has done, and it'll be a, a powerful um, help to you as well. So that that concert will be Sunday evening. That morning we'll have some sort of Christmas theme in the message. But then uh, I'm planning on, in our study in Revelation, including, like I sometimes do, a passage from Revelation in the morning and the evening, because we're going to be getting into the churches and if I just include do or the discussion about the churches on Sunday morning, it just feels like it'll be a little long. I do want to cover each one. I know that earlier this year that Marshall Fant came and he briefly went through that material, but there was a lot that he didn't cover just for time's sake. We're going to get into more detail. So we're going to cover a church both in the morning and in the evening service, and that then will get us started out toward the beginning of the year with the rest of the revelation, as John refers to in the passage tonight. So that's my goal. And then, of course, then back into the Colossians study in the evening. So tonight, though, uh, both of these studies are going to kind of come together here. So first of all, in Revelation, we are in the midst of seeing, as we saw this morning, a vision of the victorious Lord. Let's go ahead and read that passage that we started this morning. Verse 9, we'll read back through it. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
And the patient endurance in our in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And not a surprise, Paul, John's reaction here, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, as we continue to see this glorious revelation of the victorious Christ, our victorious Lord, and to see Jesus in blatant display of his deity that was somewhat veiled in the Gospels and veiled, although um, more prominently displayed in John. And here we have nothing hidden in displaying Jesus as God Almighty, Son of Man, Son of God, who is the I Am the first and the last. Lord, we know that should cause us to fear and have a reverent trembling, really. And yet, as we see, John, in the midst of his overwhelmed response, there is grace for him and help for him to continue on, to do what he's been called to do. And let us continue to do what we've been called to do, and to not be hindered by false teaching, by things that people may throw in to try to add to our dependence on Christ, but that all we need is in Christ, and that our focus needs to be entirely on Him. Help us to do that well. We need your power for that. Help us not to be distracted by other things. And let us learn much from this passage tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This glorious display of the deity of Jesus Christ, the victorious vision that displayed the powerful, portrayed the powerful son. And it has an immediate effect on John. And as he's been commissioned to write these things, and the first vision that he sees is Christ, he's just overwhelmed. What we're going to see here in this last part of this passage, folks, is that our Lord enables 
are proclaiming his victorious message. He will strengthen us to proclaim the message. Back to 17, John's overwhelmed reaction here. Not surprising, he loses almost total function here. An overwhelming awe and fear falls at his feet as though dead. This is a worshipful stance, but this is also the stance of one who is just overwhelmed spiritually and physically by what he has seen. And, and folks, let me just encourage you that to continue to, as Paul has told us in Colossians, to know, to get to know Jesus more, to know the full picture of what the scriptures, how the scriptures represent him. And I will encourage you that as you understand and know more, more about Christ, you'll be tempted to have the same response that John does. How can I stand before such an awesome individual? How can I serve and minister for such a person? Yet through that, Jesus will come. And this great, this wonderful personal touch, he gently lays this powerful figure with the glory of God shining on his face, the power of his voice that is overwhelming, and yet he comes and puts a gentle hand on the overwhelmed apostle. And he says, and it says here, but he laid his right hand on me. And what did he say? What he says to all of us when we're overwhelmed, when we say, I can't do it, Lord. It's too much. He says, fear not. Fear not. Don't have fear any longer. And this touch of the hand will revive John and strengthen him for the task he's been called to do. Why should, why should we not fear? Because Jesus is God, and he uses the very description of God in the Old Testament that he gave to his people. I am. Jesus, folks, is the I am. He is the Savior of the story. He's the one that delivered his people in the Old Testament. He is the one that is our deliverer as well. I am the first and the last, and he repeats Again, what he has already said, this description that we find many times we saw last week in Isaiah, many other Old Testament scriptures to describe God. Jesus says, that is me. I am God. Very clearly. In the Gospel of John, remember, John, uh, Jesus was clearly making or assertions that he was God, but it was still in a veiled context. Well, that's no more. In his appearance and in his words, he's making it clear to John. I am the I am. And I am the living one. And this means something a little different than what he'll describe here in just a minute. He's again saying, like he said, like he's been uh, reported on by John, the gospel of John, that he is the very source of life. The living one is a source, and he provides energy for life. As he revives John... <coughs> from his captivity of fear, and it gives him energy to continue on. Folks, he gives us energy to continue on. He is our light. He is the living one. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I died. The very one who is life, that supplies life, actually died. A very human death for us. 
Of course, we know that. And all that is summed up, the cruelty of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, this amazing individual with the glory of God shining through him, suffered the humiliation of that cross for us, the very God of heaven. Again, don't let that become commonplace in your thinking. We should marvel at that. I died, and I died for a purpose. He died on our behalf for us, and he rose then again from the dead as the eternal one whom death could not overcome. I behold, I mean, behold, I am alive forevermore. I had the power to conquer death and sin. I have been resurrected. I will live for all eternity as the one who has overcome. And that person stands before you. And because of that, Jesus has control of all things. Certainly earned that. I have the keys of death in Hades, and this um, refers to the very control of death itself. Death, Hades was the temporary holding place uh, before the lake of fire where the unbelievers who rejected God were um, thrown into punishment. And Jesus says, I have all authority. Who enters hell? Who will die? And he also has the authority for the death of his saints as well. He's totally in control of what happened to Reed and my dad and many others. Jesus says, I have control of everything. And, and because of that, you have no need to fear that kind of authority, that kind of power can enable the most, the, the person who feels the most insignificant in this room can enable that person to serve Jesus effectively. Don't you doubt. Don't you give in to anxiety over what God has called you to do. The very touch, the hand of Jesus Christ can remind you that he has all the power you need to faithfully serve him. And so then he reminds John of his commission. Because let's be honest, I mean, and nothing against John, but I'm sure he was a little distracted by all this, and it was probably a little hard to remember what the commission was. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. It's frustrating to me. Maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I'll have a, a, a number of things, maybe something I'm intent upon doing, and something will come up, maybe with one of the boys or a phone call or whatever, and I'll go through, I'll work through that, and then I'll come back, and not only can, can I not remember the specifics, I sometimes can't even remember the very thing that I was supposed to be doing. Like, this is important. I have to remember this, and yet it's just totally erased from my mind. Well, God gives grace for us when that happens, and God has grace for John, reminding him, okay, now this is what I had for you. Verse 19, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And really, he gives now an outline for the rest of the book of Revelation. John must write the things that he has already seen. What are those things? The very vision that he just saw, victorious Lord. He's supposed to write that down. Scroll. Um, and then the things that are, those will be the situation, the current situation of the churches that we're going to get into very soon. Those are the things that are currently at hand. 
You write those down too, John. And then finally, the things that are to take place after this, and that's after the description of the church or the address of Christ to the churches and the rest of the book and the future events of the rest of this revelation of Jesus Christ. John is also supposed to write. And that's a good, really, outline for the whole book. The things that uh, you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. You write that all down, John. That's my responsibility. That's my commission that I'm giving to you. And you must write them down for the seven stars and for the seven lampstands. Well, who are those? Well, they'll describe them now. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars, I'm sure that John, as he saw this magnificent vision of the Son of Man and these stars, he was wondering, what are those? And what significance are they? Jesus said, Jesus is giving him the information that he needs to proclaim and to write the revelation. He just doesn't give John some information and not explain it, but he's giving details so that he can understand. He's providing understanding for John and folks, he'll provide understanding for us in this book if we seek it. He will. So as to the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches that he just described earlier. Well, let's go back to those stars, the angels of the seven churches. What are those? Are they literally angels that are assigned to different churches? Now, you might be able to remember back to when Marsha was here, and we went through this a little bit. And that wouldn't be cheating. That'd be just show that you, you were listening and remember. But maybe not. But there is an interpretation that is quite common that somehow this these are angels. As we seem to have evidence in Scripture that people have guardian angels, well, maybe John is, or Jesus is saying that there are guardian angels over the churches. Well, there's a couple problems with that, because these angels of these churches are so tightly associated to each individual church that it also seems very clear that though these angels, these leaders, these messengers, are also tied into both the um, good characteristics and the bad characteristics of each church. And obviously, from what we know about angels, they're not going to be making mistakes that they, along with the churches that Jesus is describing here. Angels, there was there was one point where it seems angels were given a choice whether to follow God or not, or the fallen angels that followed Satan, and the rest are eternally dedicated to Christ. They're not going to be making mistakes tied to these churches. There's another aspect of why this really doesn't work for these to be actual angels. Because the whole sequence then is very strange. So uh, Christ, as, as Christ continues, there will be angels that will be um, giving John information. So if these, then he's supposed to give these to other angels, you have John receiving information from angels and then giving them to other angels who are going to give them to the church. That doesn't really work very well. Seems repetitive, at the least. There's another another um, series of interpretations that I think are more clearly what's going on here. Angels can also be messengers, and these could represent the leaders of the seven churches. 
Who could these angels be? It very well could be your pastor. And pastors, and I will expand that. I think there's room here possibly for other leaders as well. These were leaders over these churches. Remember, we're talking about house churches that would meet throughout these cities. I don't know if there was one particular pastor over all of those house churches in each city at this time, but certainly I think this refers to the leaders of these seven churches that would then give the message to the actual churches, which are the seven lampstands. And that figures, that also then ties these leaders to the um, positive and the negative aspects of each church. These angels, these leaders, are also warned and encouraged by Christ that they need to work on some things as well. And the whole, the real point of this is that Christ holds them all. Folks, I got to tell you, that is encouraging to me to know that Jesus holds me in his hand. As your leader and as your pastor, that Jesus has control over my life and he will strengthen me, protection, and, and he will chastise as he needs to. But he has me in the palm of his hand. That is wonderful encouragement. It shows his control and authority over the church, the leadership and the people. And Jesus says, because now I have this authority and control, I have some things to say to these churches. Um, and then we're going to see as we look in the next few weeks at the specifics of the messages for these churches that we as a church are supposed to listen and say, is, is that, is, does that reflect what we are? Are we reflected in the good things? Are we reflected in the warnings here? We're supposed to take note and mark those things. And Jesus calls for change for these churches, and he will call change for this church as well as we reflect on what the message, what we can learn from Jesus for Village Chapel Baptist Church from the message he gives to these seven lampstands, these seven churches. It'll be very helpful, and I'm looking forward to that study together. Um, let me just do this because of the time. Well, I'm, I'm going to quickly, I'm going to quickly go to Colossians chapter 2. Just look with me there, just briefly. Jesus, one of the main points he's making here is that he has the authority to tell us what to do. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is then dealing with false teachers who are somehow trying to take on the authority of Christ for themselves. We've seen this already. Go to Colossians 2 verse 16. And they're trying to pass rules and principles on and demand that the people follow these things, acting like they have the very authority of Christ. What we've seen from our passage of Revelation, there is authority that only Jesus has that no one else should dare take on to themselves. But these false teachers have, and they're including all sorts of strange things that people need to follow. Therefore, let no one ju pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that's false humility, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. We went through that part a couple weeks ago, but here's the second part of that passage. If with if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and cynicism and severity to the body, but they are of no value and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Christ said in Romans in that passage that he died, but folks, we are associated with Christ in his death, and Paul's making that point. As Christ died, we also died to the pull and the expectations of the world. And so we also have died to a... Um, a too great a focus on the faith, on the things of the world, the elemental spirits, spirits of the world described here in, in, in a general sense, all of the things that are found in the world, and perhaps besides that, a, a supernatural control over people in this way, a focus on the things of the world, Paul says here that we have died to. We don't have to allow these expectations of the world to have authority over us anymore. If you're still alive in the world, do not submit to regulations. Again, describing here some very strange um, things that these religious false teachers were promoting. You can't touch these things. You can't taste. You can't eat these things. Don't handle. Don't touch. Um, and all of them have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and cynicism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I thought of, as I was thinking through this passage, something that maybe you're aware of, something called in Italy, in Rome. I've never had the opportunity to be in Rome. Love to visit one day. But there's something called the Scala Sancta. English, it means the holy stairs. They're a set of 28 white marble steps that are Roman Catholic relics located in an edifice on the property of the Holy See in Rome. And these stairs uh, would only are only allowed to be climbed throughout church history on one's knees. These holy stairs would lead to the Church of St. Lawrence or the Saint to Saint Forum, which was the personal chapel of the early popes. The Roman Catholic tradition about these stairs was that they were the actual stairs on which Jesus stepped on on his way to the trial before his crucifixion. And somehow, somehow these stairs were brought all the way to Rome in the fourth century, and they attracted Christian pilgrims throughout church history that wanted to honor the passion of Christ by 
going up these stairs to meet with these religious folks on their knees, many times at um, cost of, of personal comfort. And I've even heard sometimes of people trying to get to the top going up and down. There's replicas of these stairs all over the world and people even bloodying their knees to get to the top. And somehow then this provides an experience of Christ beyond what, what, what others have experienced. Kind of ties really right in the authorities, um, religious authorities in people's lives that are saying, this, you do this, and it will give you an extra experience of spirituality and closer relationship with God. You know, historically, remember Martin Luther and the Reformation? He climbed those steps on his knees in 1510, and as he did so, he repeated the, um, the expected um, repetition of phrases called Our Father on each step. And it was said by doing this work that he could redeem a soul from purgatory. But when Luther arrived at the top, he could not suppress his doubt. Who knows whether this is true? Even early on, he thought, really? This is what I'm going to do? Now, Charles Dickens, I like Charles Dickens. He wasn't a believer. But he saw this, visited the scale of Saint in 1845. And interesting, he wrote, I never in my life saw anything at once so ridiculous and so unpleasant as this sight. And he described the scene of pilgrims ascending the staircase on their knees as a dangerous reliance on outward observations. Folks, that and many other things are exactly what Paul is talking about in these verses. We could all give examples of these things, of additional things that religion and cults add that say, if you really want to be close to Christ, then do this, that, but that the Bible never sanctions my whole point in tying these two together, folks, is that there's only one authority that we need to listen to, and that's Jesus Christ. And even as your pastor, I have to be careful that I don't emphasize things, and, and that we as a ministry even don't emphasize things that Jesus Christ himself, that I'm not convinced Jesus has emphasized, and that we're careful I certainly don't want to be one that is just giving my opinion and saying, you need to do this to be closer to Christ. I don't have the authority to do that. I have to be careful. You have to be careful. I'm thankful for that. Jesus is our authority. He gets to tell us what to do. And even I, as your pastor, all I do is fall in line, and I present you the truth of Jesus Christ. And we obey that together. The other things... Don't get caught up in those things. Don't let somebody else take the authority that rightly belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And we'll be more useful for him. We're careful on that. Father, thank you for these reminders of the authority and the power of Christ and our need to not let anyone else take his place, but to be fully dependent and focused on him. Help us to do that even this week as we focus on his birth, his incarnation, and marvel that he became man and he died. Now he lives and he is our authority in control of all things. And we revel and find great hope in that.